HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I hope you enjoyed the rest of your summer as we all did, and we are excited to be kicking off the fall season with a whole new show. First up, it's Emmeline Zhao, the managing partner and sommelier of the Silver Apricot in New York City. We talk about her growing up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Shanghai, what brought her into the restaurant world, and the stories she is telling through what she curates on the list at her restaurant. And then we head to Brooklyn for pop star turned jazz musician Senri Owe. He talks to us about his new album, his switch to jazz from pop music, and what he loves about being back in school. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
Emmeline, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for sitting down for a coast-to-coast conversation. Happy to have you on the show. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I was I was digging into your background and to your childhood, and I think what was so impressive is that you spent so much time traveling the world at a young age from North Carolina to Shanghai, Tokyo, Sweden. What what was your childhood that brought you to all these different cities and countries at such a young age? Uh, I think it's a combination of having a very globally based family. Um, my parents mm. are my parents are from Shanghai. They came to the states in the eighties, mm-hmm. um, and my mom ended up working for a Swedish company for about thirty years. So oh. spent yeah, it was we spent a lot of a lot of summers in Sweden. Uh, between you know, there was Sweden, there was Shanghai. My mom's siblings all um, moved to Japan, and so my my cousins on that side of the family are half Japanese. So I think having these little pockets of the world that were available to us because of family was kind of how all that happened. Man, those those Stockholm summers, the Swedish summers are magic. Absolute magic. Oh, I know. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. So, I mean, traveling so much and seeing the world, how did that influence your palate? And then when did you also realize that you were having a different sort of food or childhood than other people? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, one, it probably made me a total brat. Uh, and <laughs> Uh, probably hasn't. Do you not have herring or where's your soy, you know? Yeah, imagine that coming from, you know, the six-year-old sitting at... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, but I think I I knew from a pretty early age that what I ate was different and my preferences were different. Mm. You know, growing up in North Carolina in the 90s, kids don't know what, Mm -hmm. you know, red-braised pork is. And um, Mm I spent, you know, my mom really didn't like us eating school meals, um, not to, not to trash on school lunches, but it's fine. No knocks. <laughs> There's some great ones nowadays, yes. but at, oh, the yeah. t- at the time she was very adamant about, you know, making sure that she knew what we were eating, that we were having good food. And so my lunches were always packed. They were always either made, especially for lunch or leftovers from the night before. And they were mm. definitely different. They, you know, I, there were, times where my friends, I still remember my friends called them chocolate eggs, but I used to have, you know, red braised or tea eggs in my meals. Oh yeah. They, yeah. 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 But you yeah. know, imagine the, imagine the, the standard North Carolinian kid. They're like, what is that? So the running well, joke when I was a kid yeah. was I'd ate, I'd ate chocolate eggs for lunch. I mean, just any, any sort of different cuisine. And we've talked about this in past episodes with different people, you know, in the 90s, especially where it was like very standard lunch in America and that wanting to be, well, did you embrace it or were you, or did you want the Wonder Bread, French fries, pizza, chicken nuggets? I will say that I think given what you had mentioned about having a global childhood, that my palate was convinced enough that it knew what good food was, that it didn't Mm -hmm. want that. Mm. But at the same time, you still have this psychological 
sadness and you know feeling of being left out and mm-hmm. being different mm-hmm. and you you're kind of grappling with you I grappled a lot with like what I wanted versus what I felt like I should be um and I think that that mm. just folds into a larger question of you know having what is identity when it comes to being first generation in the states yeah no I I, I completely understand that like search for story and self and how you fit in, um, you know, traveling beyond just like the, the, the physical food itself. I'm sure you were also introduced to so many different types of customs and service approaches and the way that societies interacted with each other. Did you incorporate that into your approach to life or what do you remember? Because you're going from East to West, especially in a time of less globalization, less connectivity. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, Things are so different in every country, and even within every country, things are different within regions. Uh, mm-hmm. And I see that even even traveling the U.S., you know, sure. our cultures sure. here, you know, our customs here in New York, dining out are so different from where you are in L.A. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you cross borders, I think that those contrasts are even more stark, and we can learn a lot from each other. You know, in in China, for example, the service style is a lot more, uh, I guess, demanding in the sense that the the customer kind of directs how service goes. Um, whereas mm. here in the states, you know, you enter a you enter a restaurant space and you as you are a guest of the restaurant, right? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. It's, I think there are a lot of different ways that we do things, none of which are necessarily right. But I think that just comes with how we're accustomed to, you know, playing our part in society. Um, being, you know, shown all these different societies and seeing all these different interactions and things like that, um, I feel it can always lead you to different career choices. You know, food seems like the obvious fit, but I was reading that before you got into food, you got into journalism. And you were you were writing first. What pulled you into that career space first? Was it the desire to share stories and share what you've seen, or was it just all the different people you met and just seeing, you know, I want to point my experience and point readers to what I've seen in the world? Yeah. So I I still am a journalist, and mm-hmm. I now focus more less on writing and more on video and documentary production and multimedia. Um, but the stories I think are what draw me most to both industries and both lines of work. Mm. Um, I started in journalism, frankly, by accident and (laughs) it, as, as most things happen. Yeah. I mean, so many people in restaurants, like I just started washing dishes and next thing I knew 15 years later, I have a spot. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> then you start wondering, you know, what what was I thinking? Was I thinking? Why yeah. didn't I think? You know, and yeah. <laughs> and here and we now, are. Now I have Elise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now I suddenly have uh, 25 people I'm responsible for. Like, how did this happen overnight? And it's, yeah, so I, I think I, I started, honestly, uh, I got into journalism in college when a friend of mine, you know, my, I was always into photography. I knew I could write decently because um, I had won a few competitions in high school. And mm. my first year in college, my friend said, you know, will you go to this interest meeting with me for the campus paper? 
And I said, what am I going to do? And she says, I don't know. You can take some pictures for them. And also there's going to be free pizza at the meeting. So I was like, okay, great. College student, (laughs) let's go. Um, And I I took a photo assignment at that meeting. And then when I went in to actually do the work a few days later, uh, the news editor at the time said, hey, you know, the reporter for this assignment called out. Is there any way you can also write the story? And the rest is history. I never took another photo assignment again. <laughs> and, I mean, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of, it all kind of unfolded there. And, you know, like you said, you started as a dishwasher. You know, I started out as a reporter. And then the next thing I knew, I was uh, the news editor there uh, my junior year. And then wow. I ended up, you know, I found my way to the 08 Olympics in 2000 uh, in Beijing and w- uh, was a reporter there. And, then somehow found my way to the Wall Street Journal, which I'm still not convinced they didn't hire me as a mistake. But wait, uh, what do you mean, like uh, <laughs> like a clerical error? Potentially. I, Potentially, I still remember getting a I remember getting like a um, an email that was giving me information about onboarding, and I was like, wait, I never got an acceptance letter. <laughs> Just show up. Just show yeah. up. Just you know, it's like yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you hired me. Weird, I'm not in the system, but I have the email, so, you know. I rolled with it, they rolled with it, and I, here we are. God, I love those <laughs> stories. You know, I know you wrote for the Wall Street Journal, and you wrote for the Huffington Post, um, and that you were covering um, a lot of different topics. Were you able to cover food as, like, an analogy for some of the other topics you were reporting on, or were you reporting on um, more broad social themes and, and things like that? Yeah, food was never really a part of my writing at the time. Um, mm. I was I was on the economics team for the Wall Street Journal, um, mm-hmm. kind of coming out of the recession, and what I was time. deeply fast. Yeah, it was it was crazy time. to be. I felt like I was completely unqualified to be doing the work that I was doing at 22, but I was doing it. So um, I apologize in advance, or I guess retroactively apologize to anybody that was reading my stories that may or may not have been BS. But <laughs> you know, I. <laughs> I was also deeply fascinated by, you know, so in the States, we we say that education is the great equalizer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have an education, you have greater opportunity for social mobility. But that wasn't the case at the time. You know, during the recession, we were seeing a lot of folks going back to get their master's degrees, get mm. their PhDs as a way of hiding out from the economy. But when they came out and when they graduated with those degrees, they still weren't finding jobs. Oh, yeah. And so I wanted to understand why that was. Was education no longer the great equalizer? Um, and in doing so, kind of carved out this little niche for myself um, in education coverage. Um, so in do, I ended up basically just going down this rabbit hole of education coverage and no longer really covered the economy, um, as my primary beat. And so I've been covering education for the better part of 10 years now. Um, but all of that said, you know, my, my two worlds finally collided actually a few months ago when I produced a documentary, um, on a winemaking region in mm-hmm. California for uh, the education nonprofit that I work for now called the 74. 74, Yeah. Yeah. And that was, it was a really, really fun project to be able to see how all of these industries and these spaces actually intersect and work together. And there's a lot of synergy in symbiosis. Um, So 
I don't know if that really answers your question, but it, no, it, it's great. It's, it's definitely like this unique background and perspective that you have, and then being able to write these types of stories that only you could write and finding that through line, which makes for great journalists and also for great restaurant owners to have that <laughs> singular point of view. Um, all right, let's take a quick musical break. Cause when I come back, uh, I want to talk about how you got into the restaurant world and your partner show with Simone Tong and Silver Apricot in New York City. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Emmeline Zhao, the managing partner and sommelier at Silver Apricot in New York City. And 
when we left in the last break, you were talking about journalism and how, you know, a few months ago, your worlds of food and journalism merged together. But I want to go back to when you were still writing, how did you get into the restaurant world? How did you start to make that transition in? Yeah, when I, you know, I, I'd always loved restaurants. I'd always loved food and, I was definitely one of those kids that, you know, when I had access to Food Network, that was mm-hmm. that was always on in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was growing up and, you know, my, my dad worked a lot, my mom traveled a lot, and there were times where I was often in charge of dinner and I mm-hmm. would always take a little whiteboard and mm. make a, a whiteboard menu of what we were having that night. And um, That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was cute and sad all at once. And sure. it, <laughs> My mom also hosted a lot of dinner parties. My dad was kind of the center of an academic community there. And so we had a lot of those dinners at my house and I helped my mm. mom host and, and set, set the table and plan the party. So that had always been a part of my upbringing. And I think that when I moved to New York, I was also just so enamored and tantalized by the glitz and glamour of New York City restaurants and of sure, yeah. you know of the yeah, of still, the yeah. of the um the celebrity chefs that you saw on TV and mm-hmm. I was kind of having a bit of an existential crisis um where I was deeply dissatisfied with the work that I was doing um mm. and I wasn't sure if it was I didn't know if it was because I didn't like who I was working working for or if I didn't like the actual work that I was doing. So I just needed to have a little bit of time for self-exploration. So I found out that uh, Wiley Dufresne, whom I whose work I'd followed for a long time, yeah, was opening a new restaurant. And I figured, you know, why not reach out, send in a cover letter and a resume and just see what happens because I have nothing to lose at this point. Right. Uh, surprisingly, I got a call back. Um, the general manager at the time, she called me in for a meeting and I went and I said, why did you even bring me in for an interview? I have no experience on my resume and I made that very <laughs> clear in my cover letter. And And she said, well, you wrote a cover letter. Yeah. And in my mind, yeah, I didn't go. understand this, right? Um, in in all of the work that all the fields that I've been in, cover letters kind of standard, and you don't realize until you're doing this that like no, nobody writes a cover letter in restaurants. Right, 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 right. Um, and so yeah, they hired me as a host, and I worked my way through pretty much every front of house job I could work there, and that's how I got into it. And it was working for Wiley that um, I met Simone Tong, my now chef partner. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were many nights where she and I were chatting after service about hopes and dreams and potential mm-hmm. and all of those things. Um, and there was, I'd always known that she had always, she had wanted to go off on her own to open mm-hmm. a restaurant of her own later on. And for me, I said, you know, because at the time I was, I was no longer full time in journalism, but I was doing some freelance work, still just trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. And uh, for me, it was, yeah, okay, restaurant sounds like me a good, decent, you know, retirement plan. <laughs> we'll talk about this yeah. in, in 20, 30 years. Um, but then she called me up about three or four years later and uh, said, you know, 
I found a space. I'm going to open a restaurant. I found an investor. That's how it always goes. That's how yep. it goes. Oh, I found a space. <laughs> and she was doing some pop-ups for proof of concept. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, come to a pop-up. Uh, and I said, okay, of course, I'll come support you. Um, but by the way, like, if you need help, like, let me know. I'm happy to, you know, serve, host, whatever you need. And she's like, no, 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 come eat food. It'll be a good time. Mm. So I bought two tickets, uh, was going to bring my sister. And then about 24 hours before the pop-up, she calls me and she says, I need help. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still on the table? Because I, I need it. I need it. Yeah. Badly. So relinquished my tickets, uh, worked the pop-up. So I basically paid to work. And I love it. Then, <laughs> and then ended up working all of the other pop-ups. And she asked me to formally join her on board um, for wow. all of the little tong concepts. So then, you know, now we're here. Silver Apricots are our fourth physical location, um, but our second concept. I mean, what a beautiful story of just like meeting someone and liking them and then saying like, I'm going to roll my sleeves up and help you out in a pinch. I mean, it's, you don't hear that a lot. You usually hear like, yeah, I helped out. And then I was like, I got a taste. And I was like, no, no thank you ever again. Um, what was the moment when you realized that you two could really make a run at this and be partners in business? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if there was necessarily an aha moment mm. uh, that was really the the linchpin, um, but I do I do think that our our personalities balance each other out really well, as well as our strengths and weaknesses. Um, she's also one of the you know I've worked for any number of chefs at this point, but she's one of the few um, that actually really absorbed feedback and Mm. really wanted to take all of the data points into account when she was making final decisions. And that was so refreshing and so appreciative. It, it showed me that, you know, she had an understanding that restaurants are not just a craft, you know, it is a business. It is being able to have a conversation with the guest and understanding what the guest wants. Um, And she was beginning to understand that being a chef wasn't a one way. It wasn't a one way conversation. Um, it was or a one way lecture, so to speak. It was more of a conversation with guests. Um, mm. And I think that she saw in me um, somebody who saw things beyond what we've always known was the status quo in restaurants. So a lot of the work that we did at Little Tongue and that we're still continuing to do at Silver Apricot is to buck the status quo and to buck those trends and to really give our people a place where there is professional development and growth and support um, and a good culture. You know, I think that it's really important to have Mm -hmm. standards, but at the same time, you know, my people come first and that's how we have operated then and how we've all, we will continue to operate. Uh, I love that. Um, So having little tongue and having multiple locations why open up a new spot? Why open up Silver Apricot? What's the story you want to tell with this restaurant that you felt you couldn't tell with the original concept? Or was there a different story that you wanted to tell? 
It's definitely the latter. Um, the little little Tong concept was really Simone's story um, because mm-hmm. I was brought on later. Mm-hmm. Um, Silver Apricot is a story that we wanted to tell together. Uh, she's uh, she's an immigrant herself, but she's been in the U.S. for decades. I'm a first generation Chinese American. Um, I was born in Wisconsin, grew up in North Carolina, right. but <laughs> yeah, and. I think that the story of being this generation of Chinese American hasn't really been told in restaurants Mm. in the States. Um, We have a lot of, you know, very traditional Chinese restaurants, particularly, particularly if you look at, you know, places like New York and San Francisco, Chinatown um, in the San Gabriel Valley where you are. Um, It's a lot more traditional Chinese provincial you know focused and then you have chinese american takeout a lot of that that was you know actually born in san francisco chinatown um but catered towards an american palate i think that that was a lot more of a deliberate cuisine rather than what we're trying to do at silver apricot which is understand what it's like to be modern american chinese so Hmm. i go back to the examples of what it was like for my parents to be in North Carolina in the 80s and 90s, um, not having had access to Chinese ingredients, um, which mm-hmm. is now you know prevalent. You can get bok choy and things like that in grocery stores, right? <laughs> you took my example. I was like, I get bok choy at Trader Joe's. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but back then, that was unheard of, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. being in the Carolinas, it was they go to the market and there's there's okra, there's collards, you know, there's corn, yeah. and they're like, you know, what do we do with this? But cook what we know using what we can find here. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. think that that is, even then, just it speaks volumes to what we call now, you know, local seasonal farm to table. Sure. That, But that wasn't deliberate, right? That was circumstance. And I think that we really haven't highlighted, and I've, I've realized as I talked to more, more first generation, um, that that is more and more true but we don't realize that. So there's mm-hmm. a whole generation, if not two generations of Chinese Americans that grew up this way, that cooked this way, that ate this way. Um, but, you know, stir fry collards and, you know, mm-hmm. like okra porridge, like those were things that I ate. Um, but I don't think that those are, those. that's the type of cooking that we've really seen a lot in professional kitchens. You know, I feel like this idea of, of rule breaking that you, or redefining the way that people do things based on tradition is so important, especially when you take cuisine that you love and you're paying respect to something less deliberate and that was more circumstantial, but still trying to have ties to tradition and heritage. And I saw that with your um, Psalm selections as well, that you pull a lot of stuff that, Open, I don't want to say openly defies because like it's a not in tradition, but people doing stuff a different way. Can you talk a little bit how you're matching the drink program to the ethos and story and food of, of Silver Apricot? Yeah, I, I love this question because I love talking about the, the winemakers. And again, maybe this is just the journalist in me, but like the stories behind the wines. Yeah, the stories, and the stories. It's the stories, yeah. 
they're so, yeah, those are the ones that really touch you. And I think it also alters your sense of taste when you understand where things come from and who the people are that are behind them. But I digress. Um, our wine program, you know, whether I did this to myself as torture or as a challenge, I don't really know. But when we were talking about, you know, the restaurant celebrating what it's like to be Chinese American, uh, I, I thought long and hard about it. And I was like, why, why are we not celebrating the wines and the winemakers that are American or immigrant American or first generation American. Um, and at, frankly at the time, because, you know, when you start studying wine, you learn, you learn French and you learn Italian. Sure. Um, and I really didn't know that much about American wines, except for what everybody knows about American wines, which is big Napa caps. And I started to dive headfirst into it because I was like, well, it just it just makes too much sense. And I feel like I'm missing out on an incredible opportunity to celebrate the work that the people do here in this country if I don't lean into this and figure and you know, figure it out really. And I started to realize that, oh my God, we have a really, really rich winemaking landscape here. Mm -hmm. Not only mm -hmm. from the viticulture and the agricultural aspect, um, to but also to the winemaking itself and the history behind yeah. what wine is in the U.S. and the people that are doing it here. So... We are, yeah, and we are highlighting a lot of, you know, we've I have wines from Virginia, from Michigan, from Wisconsin, from Minnesota. A lot of these folks are also doing things that we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. There's some that are saying, well, you know what? There's some indigenous Amer like North American grapes that make phenomenal wines. That wow. yeah. um, why do we have to use French and Italian varieties to make wine? Um, we're planting these grapes on our soil, we should be able to pay homage to that. Um, and so they're doing some incredibly inspiring and frankly groundbreaking work, scientifically speaking, too, um, to really advance the winemaking industry in the States. Uh, and also just a shout out to so many immigrant winemakers that are, are here in the U.S. from old world wine regions, um, because they've you know, like many of us come to the U.S. for opportunity and they found that they can, there's so many more ways that they can express themselves through wine here in the U.S. Um, versus their home countries and home regions. So our list very much celebrates all of those components in, in U.S. wine. It's amazing. It's, I mean, and it, it's reflected and, and it's, you know, you have a glass of wine from a type of varietal you've never had before with the you know, Brussels sprouts and Chinese sausage. And you're like, Oh, this is a, I know what I'm having, but it feels different and familiar, but like, it's, it's a good, it's just, it just gets you thinking about like what food and drinks could be, especially when you allow yourself to just be open to a new experience or a new interpretation. Very much so. And, you know, I think that this also dials back to the conversations. And I think we're having less of this conversation now, but, you know, at least five years ago, we we're still having a conversation around authenticity when it comes mm -hmm. to ethnic cuisine. Mm -hmm. um, I think that people continuously want to prescribe cuisine to either authentic or fusion, and there's nothing in between. Whereas I think food is so fluid. It is, there's, it is all yeah. so many shades of gray. And I think that as long as, you, the creator, whether you're in wine, whether you're in food, as long as you're being authentic to yourself, mm -hmm. 
we don't need to strive to be authentic to some tradition, right? And uh, I think that seeking authenticity in the creator is what's most beautiful and magical about this space. I love it. Um, now, before we we run out of time, uh, I know that music and the vibe is a really big part of Silver Apricot. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you and staff plays. Set me the scene. It's Saturday night. You know, the the there's a cool breeze in New York. Everyone's out. We know winter's coming. Uh, what's on the playlist? What's the vibe of the restaurant? Yeah, I think that are so it really depends on who's who's in charge of the team that night i give i give a lot of license to our team to to play the music that they want to play and set the scene because the vibes there really depend on who's working service right and so your experience at a table is going to be very much colored by the people and the servers that you're dealing with and so they're the ones that are kind of running the show um but on any given night you know, it could be Taylor Swift because we're right across the street from Taylor Swift's old house on Cornelia Street. Um, but then there are also some nights where they're feeling some, you know, EDM and that's the kind of house music they want to go for. I mean, okay. I'm, I'm an old, I am all sorts of Southern and I love my like Ben Folds and bluegrass, but oh, yeah. I don't, Um, but those are a little more like summer weekday kind of music, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So we, we run the gamut of music out over there. Amazing. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story. It's really great. And I can't wait to swing in the next time I'm in the city. If people want to check out the restaurant or follow along or see what's going on, where can they go? How can they, uh, check out what's happening? We're on Instagram. Uh, our handle is Silver Apricot NYC, and our website's not all too different. It's just silverapricot.nyc. Oh, amazing. Well, big shout out to Ella and Cassandra over at Mona for putting us in touch. Thank you so much. We have a song from the archives and then a live performance from Senri Oye uh, here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. That's it. Thank you so much. This was fun. Um, that was great. Hold on. I just got to do one pickup for myself. Uh, I'm yeah. just going to do the tag out one more time. Um, Go for it. Uh, big shout out and thank you to Ella and Cassandra over at Mona. We have a live performance from Senri Owe after a song from the archives here of Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Senri, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, my name is Senri Oe, jazz pianist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> jazz composer. Yep. Yeah. Um, so much of what I love about jazz is this idea of reinventing a theme and like taking something that's been established and then personally reinterpreting it by the performer. How much has jazz come to represent and define your life? Um, I actually, uh, I have to um, describe my background i mm-hmm. used to be a yeah i used to be a um pop singer songwriter for a long time in japan my country so when i was 47 i really yeah i've been uh, on the other side i've been a long time jazz cats jazz lover mm-hmm. so when i was 47 i came to america new york with my tiny one-year-old girl dog, Daxwood <laughs> Peace. So um, I launched uh, my own level, PND means uh, Peace Never Die. <laughs> <laughs> and Peace became 17. And uh, I almost uh, 63, though, but still wow. loving music and jazz and cooking, anything. Yep. So going back to those days of being a pop star and, and, you know, I don't, I've seen some of the footage at you at these giant stadiums and things like that. What was on your writer? Like, what were you eating at these giant concerts and, and what was food like on the road back then? Were they big giant meals where you get getting to eat all over Japan and the world? What was food on the road? Like during your, the height of your pop stardom? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a good question though. I don't know, uh, remember at that time because, you know, other than uh, making music, 
doing concerts and meeting and transportation and uh, taking up in a green room. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember anything because you know always eating after big concert in the stadium, you mm. know. Stand the oldest I can see you in the arena, people. Yeah, it was something like that. Everyone yelling and uh, sing, sang my song, wave their yeah. hands together after. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. And I have to slowly go back to a hotel and uh, stop in mm. buy some grocery. Uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to have some, you know, miserable sandwich and Diet Coke. That's all. That's all. <laughs> and watching TV <laughs> and uh, practicing, practicing next next day's uh, concert MC. You know, hello, hello Nagasaki. Oh, next day tomorrow is Nagasaki. No, 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 no. Not Nagasaki. Osaka. Tomorrow Osaka. Hello Osaka. Osaka. How are you? Yeah, no, 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 no. Something like that. And I'm fading out and get up. Oh, this is new day, but still I have to do same thing. Mm. You know? <laughs> That's my life. Was, was that repetition that like you're in this cycle of pop music and performing and having these terrible sandwiches, you know, <laughs> and having all this success, which is amazing, but did that help? lead to this pivot of wanting to do a different direction with your music and, and getting into jazz, which I know is an early love for you, but we're like, I, I've reached these heights and maybe it's time to try something new. That's a very high end question because uh, <laughs> at that time, you know, um, the music drove me uh, creating a lot of tunes. Mm. So uh, when I uh, standing on the platform, of a bullet train, Shinkansen, uh, mm-hmm. in Japan. Oh, I found there some melody. I pick up the phone, pay phone around that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sang the phrase, this is uh, uh, 1.30 p.m. Osaka. So I hope uh, you will be able to create new melody. Thank you, Senri. Bye. Like that, <laughs> so that chunk, a lot of chunk tied together. I'm making, uh, creating anything. So always that kind of thing. So music, strong power, uh, mm. gave me a lot of chance, opportunity to uh, to expand my life. You know, at around that time. Music drove me to the uh, actor's world because I used to do uh, acting too. Mm. So that's interesting possibility, chance, and uh, a lot of things. But on the other hand, I've been, I told you, I have been a big fan of jazz. So every day I never forget how someday I want to learn my favorite music and I want to be a pianist. That's my small dreams. But when I was 47, dreams come true. My Mm. choice was, uh, you know, uh, enter to music conservatory. (laughs) So that's why I came here in New York. Yeah. Do you, was there one specific moment where Mm -hmm. you said, I'm going to just move or put a pause into the pop career 
and, mm. and moved to New York into jazz. Do you remember one thing or was it just this gradual thing, as you said, where you're hearing mm. this music everywhere, you've had this love for jazz. Mm. Was it a gradual thing or like you just felt this moment, I'm 47, I got to go? Not graduate. I always, you know, climbing my my mountain to the pinnacle. Mm. Uh, two things I remember. The first one is uh, one of my friend musician. So he used to be a, a, in a Europe for a long time. Accordion, copa, uh, accordion musician, uh, kind of jazz, classical music. And me and Cobra uh, was doing a rehearsal for program. So mm. he just said to me, Senri, between you and me, you can go to Europe or mm. America, America to be a real. So, oh, oh my God, he understand how I feel. In Japan, I almost satisfied my career but still I'm struggling to be someone every minute. So mm. uh, his insight, you know, uh, makes me, uh, uh, okay, I want to do more. That's the first one. And the second one is one of my audience uh, said just after I did the imp- improvisation on my stage, Senri, uh, you have to do a more precise music. Don't mm. impro- improvise. Pop uh, is a more precise. You have to do what you rehearsed in the studio. Follow that. So that phrase makes me, a, yeah, I, I don't want to do a negative thing any, but, oh, this is, uh, might be a great timing to move to another dimension of my life. Mm. I'm, I have to open my second chapter of my life. At that time, I really thought. So a little by little, I started to research uh, mm. what is good for me. So I found the uh, new school for jazz. Amazing. Well, I, I want to hear a song. Um, what is the first song you want to play for us and what's the story behind it? And this is uh, Akita 5, 4, and 6, 8, uh, uh, some kind of a combination song. Akita in Japanese meaning um, fall, autumn, June. Amazing. Well, we have Senri Owe here live on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. That was just Senri away playing live for us. And, you know, you moved to New York to yep. study jazz. Mm-hmm. Why New York? Why not stick around in Japan? Was it both the level of school and learning and understanding of jazz you can get in New York? Or was it also this idea of leaving mm-hmm. Japan where you'd become defined as one type of musician and you could go to New York and just be Mm -hmm. not anonymous, but sort of fade into the fabric of life there. Um, There was uh, three reasons. Mm. So the first one, uh, um, early in the early Mm -hmm. nineties, I had been uh, back on the force between New York and Mm. Tokyo. For a long time, and I bought, uh, I rent a small uh, room apartment in a um, village, West Village. So every day I pass the uh, a lot of jazz wannabe students uh, go to a new school for jazz. So for me, who really love jazz, someday. I also want to be, uh, uh, you know, students who learn uh, how to do jazz theory, yeah, training, you know, side music, a lot of things, rhythmic something, you know, I want to do that. That's my dream. That this is first one, and uh, second one is just like a change the intersection mm. signal, uh, uh, red to uh, green. You know, mm-hmm. I try to uh, apply uh, to um, Berkeley uh, music in Korea first mm. because I'm so close at the first. It might be good, so um, I try to do that, but no response. And I try to do a Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music, but you know, no answer. So after wow. how many gold <laughs> records do you need to get a response, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> after that, I uh, uh, asked my mentor, the bass uh, mm. player, my mentor, Sam. That Sam said, "I, I want to be uh, your helper. Uh, I play with you." and to make a demo tape to a new school. So we did a great demo tape, and I wrote the English introduction. Mm. If you take me to your school, um, I I can write uh, some best tune for, you know, female singer, and mm. uh, that's going to be uh, number one of uh, Jazz Week or something like that. So <laughs> that's number two. And uh, number three is, uh, you know, I feel familiar, you know, New York. Yeah. I love that. And uh, every day mm-hmm. after going back to my place apartment, I want to go to uh, some jazz venue to listen to uh, legend musicians. So one, two, three reasons. Yeah. I mean, I love it. And, you know, you moved to New York uh during a great era 2008 i was living in new york at the same time i was living in williamsburg and and brooklyn and and new york manhattan at that time was just so creative there was such a a feeling in the city 
of just anything was possible. Mm-hmm. Let's go make some art. Let's make some music. What what do you remember as being inspiring at that time? What do you remember feeling that was just getting you creatively going? Um, and when when did you realize you had made the right decision? Um, yeah. Uh, every every day when I, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, went to a jazz standard to listen to uh, uh, Maria Schneider. Mm. So, yeah, I was in the first table just in front of the stage and she left her cell phone on my table and she said to me, you have to count running time. Okay, <laughs> so I was so surprised, but you know, very friendly. So that's a, a yeah, delish moment. And also, um, I tried to um, talk to uh, Frank West, and he gave me uh, his private number. So if you like to uh, uh, wanna do a lesson or take lesson or something, you can call me in person. Wow. And I I called him and uh, we talked half an hour. So just uh, before uh, he passed away. Mm. So that's uh, my treasure, uh, treasure memory. And also in a bird learned the green room. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, um yeah some musician tried to uh give me a very encourage uh saying something i uh, a lot of memories yeah mm. yeah um going back to school at that age especially given the career that you had has to be pretty incredible given the fact that you've had all the success and then you were studying with all these these kids who were so much younger than you. What did you learn from them? You know, what what did you take away from them? And did you teach them anything from your your mm. career on the road? Yeah, um, when I used to be a singer songwriter in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, uh, almost self taught every day. You know, uh, curriculum that I made every minute. So I learned from me, by me, and I tried to do something new. And yeah. from there, I learned again every day, you know, repeat uh, like that life was me. But when I uh, um, into uh, the character in new school, other than me, uh, I was 50. And other than me, everyone 18, 19, 20, wow. 21, who can do already jazz, you know? Right, right. So um, the one person, very older, uh, much older than teacher, and also didn't know anything about jazz. So um trans- You knew a little about jazz. A little bit. Yeah, but the feeling. My sure, feeling. The feeling. Right, yeah. Right, right. But you know, I don't know uh, the Ionian, you know, I don't know the uh, mm, rhythmic you know, uh, mm-hmm, su- mm-hmm, sub mm-hmm. subdivision or something like that. I didn't know that at all. So now every day in the class, the teacher said, especially in the sight reading, you know, suddenly, come on, 
and uh, <laughs> sat in front of the piano. You have to do from the first bar, Buck Invention. And you don't have to do any mistakes. Slow is okay. You have to keep on your pace, uh, but not without mistakes. So that everyone come, surround the scenery. And I <laughs> couldn't do that. And I failed. And the teacher said, this is the uh, baddest, <laughs> baddest <laughs> example. Oh, my God. This is baddest in my life. But, you know, on the other hand, I felt, oh, my God, this is what I wanted. Mm. Because, you know, in Japan, people around me try to help me. You know, always, Sandri, you want a towel, you want a food, you want a something, you know, oh, everybody yeah. tried to yeah, take yeah, care yeah. of me, just like, uh, you know, I was the uh, Justin Timberlake, you know, <laughs> yeah, just, just what I have to do is uh, just dry my sweat. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, on the other hand, oh, this is a uh, uh, right way. I have to learn from here. So I have to share uh, the honky-tonk out-tuned piano with uh, Max from New Jersey, who really good at piano, just piano. But he always kick a piano, a fake piano. Oh, my God, I hate this piano or something, but he's good at jazz piano. But I said uh, slightly, Max, don't hit the piano. <laughs> Don't hit the piano, Max. What? Don't hit the piano. Piano is piano. We yeah. have to carry piano together. Okay, Sanri. <laughs> that conversation every every day. Every day. So somebody came to me. Hey, hey you. Hey you. In this class, just one person doesn't know jazz. I don't feel comfortable. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, mm. Peter. Peter, I said Peter. <laughs> yeah, Peter, uh, what I should do, you know any best teacher, just teacher, you, you should rec- recommend for me. You have to look for by yourself. This oh, is yeah. Silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, you're very cold. But, you know, after that, I learned, mm-hmm. you know, Aaron Goldberg said, you used to be a singer-songwriter. You don't <laughs> write down. Transcribe is by your ears. And you have to sing. Okay, okay. You have to keep on, keep on singing, singing. That's Aaron way. So um, I learned a lot from Aaron Goldberg and Junior mm. Oh, I'm sorry, Junior Manso always between Junior and me in the class private lesson. I'm not senior. I'm Junior. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm Junior. Hey. And uh, when I start to uh, play piano, no, 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 no I want to play. I want to play. So 95 percentage. I was the uh, listener, happy listener, uh, uh, listen to a uh, junior man's praying in class. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Um, let's let's take a let's take a little break and hear another song right now. Ooh. What are you going to play for us? Um, I have been a big fan of 
Tony Carlos Jobin. So I got big influence from him. This is the uh, Lauro G. Freitas. Uh, amazing. All right. It's Senri away here live on Stacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. That was just our musical guest, Senri Owe, playing live for us. 
And when I think about my time living in, in Williamsburg in New York, and when I go back to visit, I always think about the food and I'm always planning my meals. Um, <laughs> where do you like to eat? Where do you like to shop? I know you do a lot of cooking. What's your, what's your uh, food life in, in, in Brooklyn like? Uh, my favorite place is, is Williamsburg, of course, mm -hmm. especially uh, along the coast. Mm -hmm. used, used to be a sugar factory. Mm -hmm. you know, and the, the Domino Wales. factory, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know well, you know better. Yeah, yeah I used yeah. to live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, around that. And uh, Dumbo. Mm -hmm. You know, under the Manhattan Bridge, Brooklyn Bridge, around that area too. I love the uh, Brooklyn Heights, that area, mm -hmm. very fancy though. I love that. And uh, also, I love the uh, Jefferson. Mm -hmm. There's some good new restaurants and bars out there as well. Mm, yeah, that's true. And uh, a lot of murals on the wall. Mm -hmm. So, uh, wherever I go, I can take good pictures mm -hmm. so i love that very yeah mm. and i know that you cook a lot as well so much so that you you put out your own cookbook what's the story behind that how did you how did you start putting recipes together what made you want to put out your own recipe collection <laughs> um that's a practical reason uh especially in the pandemic i have to cook you know mm. i have to stay home and using a leftover in the fridge so open the fridge uh cucumber shiitake mushroom and mm. uh, tomato tofu i have to do a shiitake mushroom tofu spaghetti or something like that with a garlic pepperoncino or something like that so i uh discover a lot of you know the way uh, be a good food around mm. that era. And uh, after, uh, once I hang out with my friend, that's going to be a great meaningful because mm -hmm. every day I have to cook. So um, that pandemic era makes me, uh, yeah, been a life, life chef. <laughs> so I... Um, I'm a much, you know, better uh, life manager, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, cooking a lot. And, uh, yeah, um, limited uh, ingredients uh, give me a lot of ideas to make uh, unknown stuff uh, mm. coming up from me. So every minute's cooking makes me just like composing, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. improvisation, and a very, very tense. You know, I <laughs> am the, uh, I am the uh, last customer. Uh, the last day of his life. So mm. for him, I would like to be a best chef for me so yes, that's yes. a concept of my book yeah. mm, i love it and when you're cooking what are you listening to is it your own music is it jazz is it pop what do you have playing in the background when you're in the kitchen oh my god no music because you know in my brain mm. yeah in my brain a lot of music always you know staring up so i can't <laughs> control so um 
besides, you know, scissoring sounds and that makes me, you know, a lot of our energy. So I don't need any music around the cooking time. So I always just like a Zen monk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I find that I cook a lot in silence as well. I always think that I want to put something on and then I just, I just need the quiet. I just need to hear the food cook and I need to hear the different sounds of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you're in New York now. You've put out your, your, your eighth album, uh, your jazz album, Class of 88, which is really interesting because it marries some of your old pop career with your jazz career. Mm-hmm. What And I know that you did that um, on earlier albums like Boys and Girls. What made you want to go back now that you've established yourself, you've played at Birdland and you're in New York and you're fully entrenched in the city. Mm. When, what made you say like, I want to bring part of this other career back and marry it to my current career. Um, the more I indulge in the jazz music here in Brooklyn, the mm. more I can feel all oh, music has no border, you know, mm. Beyond the jazz, I would like to be uh, someone who can make music, play music. So uh, little by little, I'm transforming to uh, uh, try to combine uh, my old music, 80s, 90s, and 2022, because uh, I already wrote, wrote, written a lot of ideas in the era, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I started to listen to that. Uh, even though those are written by me, I <laughs> really uh, inspired from there. You know, already a code progression is very, mm. you know, precise and comfortable, accessible, friendly. Oh my God, I want to do a more friendly Beatles jazz, you know, <laughs> all over the world. The people hum like this. You know, oh, if I can do that, I'm the only person who can do that because, you know, I did uh, pop music in Japan. I'm now trying to do uh, some new Senly jazz here in Brooklyn. So that's mm. where little by little I'm transforming to uh, this uh, dimension. So I love it. It's it's that reinvention of your own theme, your own <laughs> music. Um, well, listen, I I want to make sure we have enough time for one more song. But if people want to listen to your music or follow along or see when you're playing your next shows, where can they go? How can they uh, see what you're up to these days? Um. Uh, September uh, 22nd, mm-hmm. I want to be uh, uh, appearing on Ato Boutique in uh, mm. Second Valley, San Jose uh, venue as a solo piano and uh, 8 p.m. And after October 5th, as a trio, we are appearing on stage with the Dazil in uh, Denver, Colorado. Mm, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and the end of this year, our trio are uh, going to do in touring in Japan, uh, Blue Note Tour. Yeah. Wow. Bring, bring it on home, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, amazing. So um, what is the last song you have for us? Uh, what's the story behind it? 
This was uh, from the、uh, one, two, three, four. I made nineteen eighty eight. Wow! So that was the、uh, changing time for me. I tried to、um, pick up some motif from my real life for my lyric work. So that's a very changeable uh, uh, transition time. That's why I call my new album "Jazz New Album Class of Eighties." But、mm. knock 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 to eighty-eight. You know, from jazz, from pop, you can combine music is music. The idea. So、uh, from there, "Glory Days" original title "Glory Days," but you know. That's a little bit church title, so otherwise,、uh, born in USA. So yeah, 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 Yes, live on Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you next week.
Talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org/slash subscribe.